One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be talking about selling sickness. And asking whether the drug companies are turning us all into patients, whether we like it or not. If you are able to convince a lot of people that they may have a problem or they may get a problem in the future that they now can prevent, it's very interesting for you as a pharmaceutical industry. And we hear about a remarkably cheap new meningitis vaccine. We specifically asked. What were constraints in terms of the addition of new vaccines in in Africa? And we were told quite clearly that the principal constraint was cost of vaccine. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, my FT colleague, pharmaceuticals correspondent Andrew Jack, is back in the studio with me. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Clive. And we're delighted to welcome Simon Denegri. Chief Executive of the Association of Medical Research Charities. Hello, Simon. Hi, Clive. We're delighted to see you. Indeed, all the more delighted because you succeeded Diana Garnham, our regular studio guest, who's currently away in Asia, at the head of the AMRC. So, tell us about the organisation, what the medical charities are doing. Yes, and what a fantastic predecessor I had. The uh, association is composed of 124 medical research charities who all fund clinical and biomedical uh, research in the UK. It's a very diverse family from the Wellcome Trust and Cancer Research UK through household names like the Alzheimer's Society down to some very small charities. As an overall sector, we fund over uh, £1 billion of uh, research in the UK and another, t- and another 200 million uh, internationally. So we're one of those spaces which brings together science and the patient. And I think one of the things I've noticed, having spoken to various conferences last week about this, is about the rise and rise of patient involvement and patient interest in research. You know, we're the second only country after Netherlands, which has around 75% of people who donate to medical research. And that's a fantastic effort that we see nationally. Does most of your charity's income come from donations from patients and the public, or is it mostly from historical foundations like the Wellcome? Well, clearly the Wellcome Trust is quite a large slice of the overall pie. But outside of that, the vast majority, I would say around 95% of that, is coming from the public in the form of donations. And, you know, I know from my experience of working within some of those charities that if you put a research message in front of the public they really, really will put their donations in because it's all about being part of the solution. And and Simon, have you found that most of the research efforts and the funding has gone into early stage science or can you point also to some successes maybe even in later stage and product development by a number of your member organisations? I think this is interesting. I think once upon a time you could have said that predominantly the money was spent on basic science, but even in the short time I've been at the AMRC, I've noticed a, a change in charities, many charities, you know, you have to understand that they're mission-driven, but they're highly strategic, and they've often got a very motivated patient group behind them, Andrew. So what we've seen is more and more charities come to us and say, we actually want to fund translational research or clinical research. And when we did a survey earlier this year, we did a sample of about 44 charities, and they were funding um, around £80 million of clinical research 
which is an incredible amount. I'm not sure you would have found the same result five or six years ago. So they are moving into that space. And of course, that's where they begin to collaborate with pharmaceuticals and others. And it's all about getting these treatment options out, I think. And there are some very, very good examples. I was talking about one last uh, last week to a conference of the Motor Neurone Disease Association working with a company called Biomedica to produce, um, to do early phase trials of gene therapy for motor neurone disease. And that's pretty classic now, I think, of the way that charities want to work in the future. They'll always fund basic research. It's very important to them. But they are wanting to move into that space. And how are the donations going? Are people contributing more as we run into recession and economic hard times? It's a very uncertain atmosphere out there, an uncertain environment. I would say generally the sector's done quite well so far. And uh, if you look back to the previous year, for instance, it was just over 900 million of research. So it's managed to increase its commitments. It's clear that I think smaller charities are finding it very, very difficult. I think the next year or so could be very critical in showing us whether it's going to level off or whether it's going to continue the trend or... I think, the, I think the jury's still out, actually. What I do know is that when I go and talk to chief execs, it was very interesting at the early stage of the credit crunch, chief execs were saying, we're going to have real trouble here, but we're, we're really ambitious about our research. So whatever happens, we're going to really you know, put our weight behind this. And I think that ambition is very um, notable within our sector in this country as opposed to perhaps NGOs in, in other countries. Well, sticking with biomedicine, I'm going to let Andrew introduce this week's next theme, which is selling sickness. Andrew? Yes, so I was at a conference fairly recently in Amsterdam that was organised, interestingly, in part by official Dutch government bodies. And the idea was to discuss so-called selling sickness, so whether some of the pharmaceutical companies are actually perhaps over-egging the pudding and creating an unnecessary demand for certain drugs, certain therapy areas as a way to make profit where really perhaps the priorities of medical spending and the focus of doctors and indeed the concerns of patients are being misplaced. I talked to Ruud Koolen van Brackel from the Dutch Institute for the Rational Use of Medicine about the conference and the concern around selling sickness. Everywhere in the world we are reaching the limits of what we can afford in our healthcare system. So what we are looking for is what is useful treatment and what is the cultural and the societal dimension of it. So what kind of sicknesses are not really that important or invented these days so we can have a critical view at what we are treating and what we should not be treating. So how far do you think marketing is distorting medical priorities and the choice of suitable treatments? It's not only marketing. In my opinion, it's a societal and a a cultural phenomenon. And marketing, of course, derives profits from that. Because if you have a population that can use your medication, you tend to try to expand this population to have more people using your medication. So if you are able to convince a lot of people that they may have a problem or they may get a problem in the future uh, that they now can prevent, it's very interesting for you as a pharmaceutical industry. So give us an example of perhaps one of the worst examples you see of perhaps inappropriate prescribing based on diseases or medicines that aren't the right ones or necessary. Something that strikes me a lot is, for example, if you look at the population of Norway, which is the healthiest population in the world, 
and you look at the criteria of the WHO about the levels of cholesterol and high blood pressure under which or over which you should treat people, then you see that at 50 years old, 90% of the Norwegian population should be considered sick, which is preposterous, which is absolutely nonsense. But this is uh, something that is, we are getting accustomed to this kind of looking at sickness and health. So we should be very critical about that. So you see a big mismatch, for example, here in the Netherlands between medicines that are prescribed and what the evidence would suggest should be prescribed. It's difficult to, to talk about evidence in this, in, in this respect. What, uh, in my opinion, this is not only a medical problem and sometimes it's everything but a medical problem. When you talk about high cholesterol or high, high uh, blood pressure, these are acknowledged sicknesses or, or acknowledged factors that can provoke sicknesses. But there are a lot of uh, things like, for example, an overactive bladder or erectile dysfunction, which are for a small population, I think, very serious problems. But what you see in the selling of sickness is that it is perceived that a lot of people suffer from these diseases. Even relatively minor problems... Uh, like, for example, restless legs, which is maybe a problem for 1% of the population. If you believe the information, the website, etc., it's 20, 30, 40% of the population which should be treated for that. On one of the websites I read, well, maybe you don't have a problem with it and you, are, you don't wake up from it, but your spouse could wake up from your rest, restless legs so you should be treated well this is the sort of uh, selling sickness we, we should avoid we must avoid so coming out of this conference what do you think are the big recommendations what does need to change if we agree that this is a cultural and a societal phenomenon you know that it's not easy to, to solve so where we should start is to get public awareness for this theme for this issue so that people in general recognize that they are not patients all the time. Transparency is a second step. Independent information about all kinds of selling sickness and maybe trivial diseases is the third step. And so we can determine a lot of activities which we should do. There does seem to be quite a discontinuity between the fact that, at least in Western societies, healthy lifespans are increasing the whole time. And so is the burden of disease, at least as some people define it. Simon, your member charities are mostly working, I presume, on what you'd call real diseases <laughs> yes. and not selling sickness. Yes. Do you feel there's any distortion of the My Medical Research enterprise? Yes, I do, actually. I, I looked at the papers from the conference and it was fascinating to me. Some of those examples uh, used in the conference and talked about in the conference are quite familiar to people, but I was quite struck by them. And I, I thought, well, looking at it from a patient view or a charity point of view, there are so many concerns that are wrapped into this. You know, the fact that healthy people will be taking medicines that potentially could do them more harm than good, the whole exaggerated claims aspect. I think there's a whole market that's being created out of what I might call the unbearable ordinariness of being. 
you know, that you have something that you might worry about slightly that someone's defining as a disease. And I think it is worrying. And I think the difficulty is that it's, it is quite a cultural issue, I think, in Western developed countries, this sense that your identity now is so wrapped up, not just in terms of the actual disease you may have, but what you might have in the future, you know, and you wear it on the sleeve and you, ne- and you need treatment or some sort of intervention for it. You'll hear from the pharmaceutical industries that to some degree there are scientific challenges that make certain diseases more difficult to approach. But on the other hand, obviously, there is a sort of herd mentality and there are the temptations in some of these disease areas that aren't really that serious to be a potential blockbuster. Do you think things are getting worse or better? Rude's talked about trying to get a greater understanding out there that we're not patients all the time and transparency. I think one of the key things that actually has to happen is that we have to somehow get pharmaceutical companies, but I would say the rest of biomedical science as well, to move closer to the public. The public and patients, real patients, need to be very much more involved in how we look at research. And I think that could be the real transformative influence in terms of research research in the future. Now, one disease that is very real is meningitis. And Andrew has news of a cheap new meningitis vaccine that could make a real difference, particularly in Africa. Andrew. I talked to Mark LaForce from PATH, a Seattle-based charity that's been pioneering over the past few years a very affordable vaccine for meningitis A, something that particularly affects the so-called meningitis belt of many millions of Africans. Epidemic meningitis has been an important public health problem in sub-Saharan Africa for over 100 years. This area has annual small outbreaks of meningitis, but every 10 to 12 years, these small outbreaks coalesce into major epidemics, such that the epidemic in 1996, 1997, involved better than 250,000 cases of acute meningitis and 25,000 deaths. Uh, Last year in northern Nigeria, there were over 55,000 cases of men a meningitis that occurred and it occurred over a two month span of time. The epidemics are totally unpredictable. When they happen, communities are paralyzed. People simply just won't go out of their homes for the fear of, of catching something. So how did this project come about to develop a new effective vaccine against meningitis A? After the 1996 epidemic, African Ministries of Health asked the World Health Organization to look at this problem and to help develop new and more powerful vaccines to combat these epidemics. This led to a partnership between the World Health Organization and PATH that submitted an application to the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation saw fit to fund a 10-year project aimed at developing a new and more powerful Group A meningitis conjugate vaccine. And you've uh, developed this vaccine. It's going to cost only about 50 cents per dose. When you look normally at vaccines, the prices seem to be talked about are dozens of dollars or even hundreds of dollars each and seem to normally take much longer to successfully launch. So how to explain the low cost and the rapid development in this case? 
The low cost is related to conversations and discussions that we had with African public health officials in the early phases of the project. Uh, We specifically asked what were constraints in terms of the addition of new vaccines in, in Africa, and we were told quite clearly that the principal constraint was cost of vaccine. When we further explored this area and said, well, all right, if it's cost of vaccine, what cost would be an affordable cost? Uh, And the Africans responded was that they could feel confident in being able to sustain, that is to have sustained use of a product if the product cost less than 50 U.S. cents a dose. We didn't realize it at the time, but that established a ceiling price for the vaccine that we would develop. Hence, the vaccine was developed as a monovalent vaccine, not a polyvalent uh, vaccine, and was specifically uh, developed to combat these group A meningococcal epidemics that make up about 85% of all uh, epidemic meningitis in the African meningitis belt. So what now are the remaining challenges in actually implementing the widespread use of this vaccine across Africa? Uh, The remaining challenges are, one, to go through our first three countries. Uh, There are always lessons to be learned. Uh, This is the first time that a vaccine will be given to an age group of 1 to 29 years of age to rapidly establish uh, herd immunity or community-based immunity. And the challenge would be the continued rollout to following countries such as Nigeria, Chad, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, to continue with this introduction, which could be finished in as short as five or six years, is going to require financial support. Even at a low cost of the vaccine, uh, funds have to be identified to support vaccine introduction uh, in the meningitis belt. Certainly the Gates Foundation now dwarfs all UK research Mm. charities, even the Wellcome Trust. Simon, how much is it setting the agenda worldwide now? Gates? Yes. I think in some areas, I think it's been a very important force for good, I think. It's interesting, isn't it? In this country, we don't have a, a great history of large, you know, philanthropists or donations coming through. And I think that's one thing that we've talked often about in the sector, what's what's dissuading them from perhaps um, uh, being involved in the UK. But I think what you are finding is UK charities being much more active on the international sphere. So perhaps that's a, a you know a positive for the future. The vaccine one is interesting because I know that one of my charities, Meningitis Research Foundation, is really looking uh, abroad now as well as the UK in terms of what it funds in the future. So I think we will see much more activity internationally rather than very nationally based. But I think Gates is very important. Because the one sobering message perhaps out of that is that uh, however much a philanthropy or indeed a drug company or others mm. might invest in the science, you also need a commitment within the countries that are affected, don't, don't you, to yeah. prioritise health and disease. Yes. And sadly, I mean, even though a lot of these African countries are quite poor, in fact, they're, even as a proportion of their government budgets, they're spending very often a tiny, tiny yeah. fraction <clears throat> on research and implementation of things absolutely, that work. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's that whole infrastructure how, about how you get medicine out through the country, isn't it, in, a, in, in one where there's very little in the way that we would understand it. Now, it's time for a total change of 
pace and ideas. We're going over to Robert Frederick and his contribution from Science Magazine in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Rethinking quantum physics concepts in an informational context has led to some new insights that could help physicists come up with a more fundamental understanding of matter. For example, consider Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We usually say, well, you're trying to measure, say, the position of a particle, and then you won't know the momentum of the particle. Jonathan Oppenheim is a theoretical physicist at the University of Cambridge. Now consider Heisenberg's uncertainty principle informationally, as Oppenheim calls it. So you can think about uncertainty as some restriction on how much information you can get. Oppenheim says this kind of thinking about quantum theory helps make sense of the concept of non-locality, too. Non-locality is the idea that spatially separated quantum systems can instantaneously influence one another. But informationally... You can think of non-locality in terms of questions being asked and information being uncoded. So with uncertainty described as some restriction of how much information you can get and non-locality in terms of questions being asked and information being uncoded... And so when you start to think in those terms, then it starts to appear much more natural that these two concepts might be linked. And in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Oppenheim and co-author Stephanie Weiner showed that these two concepts are linked. The uncertainty principle determines the non-locality of quantum mechanics. Co-author Stephanie Vayner researches quantum information theory at the National University of Singapore. Of course, because we link these concepts, we can also transfer things we have learned about one of these concepts to understand the others. So by understanding both things and going back and forth, we can obtain an increased understanding of the whole picture. The whole picture is still quite, well, uncertain. You know, quantum mechanics is pretty strange. Andrew Doherty is a theoretical physicist at the University of Sydney and is not affiliated with the paper. And any time anyone starts talking about it, if you're not an expert, it sounds really very crazy. But Doherty, who's surprised by the connection between uncertainty and non-locality, says taking this informational viewpoint seems like a pretty fruitful, possible way forward. And there's a lot of people that are hopeful that will better understand the foundations of quantum physics, why it is the way it is, by thinking along these lines. It's more just getting a clear conceptual framework for our physical theories. Again, study co-author Jonathan Oppenheim. And that allows us to start to think about alternative theories. And I think that would be my hope that, you know, I think a lot of us think that maybe quantum theory will be superseded by something else. And if one believes that, then you need to kind of know what is changeable. How can we modify our theories and what sort of modifications will lead to disasters and what modifications won't? And this work kind of gives us some clues to that. So it gives us a chance to kind of see what will happen when we play around a bit with other laws that might exist in nature. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thank you, Robert, and many thanks to AAAS and Science Magazine for a timely reminder that exciting work is going on in physics, both theoretical and, last week, Andrew, you were writing about practical. That's right. A a lot of excitement around CERN um, and research by physicists and uh, a new breakthrough uh, earlier this month where they managed to temporarily trap uh, particles of antimatter, hydrogen, long enough to be able to measure them, which they hope could be a very uh, useful way to actually try to understand if there are some tiny differences between matter and antimatter that could help to explain a little bit the origins of the universe and the disappearance of antimatter. I think on that note, I'm going to have to wrap up for today. 
please join us again next week for more fascinating tales from the world of science. Now I'd like to thank Andrew and Simon for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Emily Cadman. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.